The first thing that I would say is that we stopped debating that diversity and inclusion were the right thing to be doing. Right. It was, it's a fact, right? It's like climate change, it's a fact. <laughs> Finally, the face of technology firms is changing. I think we just need to move on from having a conversation about the value and the studies and so on, move on from that and what do we do about it. But what can be done to accelerate that growth? So what we did about it, we did something really hard. We set a target, right? That is extremely hard, it's controversial, not everyone agrees with it, you know, it's got its pros, it's got its cons, and so on, well, we did it. Telstra Vantage, bringing the magic of technology, insight, inspiration, and innovation. Behind the Mic with Adam Spencer. I'm going to start this podcast with a simple statement of fact. Having more women in your technology company makes you better. It gives you a wider range of ideas and perspectives to draw on. It gives you a better understanding of your customer base. And quite simply, if you're only selecting your staff from half the population, you're leaving anything up to 50% of the talent on the sideline. So, having laid that out, I'm not going to spend the next 30 minutes trying to convince you about the value of women in technology. Instead, we're going to be looking for ideas that will get your company where it wants to be. Joining me on this ride is Anastasia Comorato, the Chief Information Officer for Consumer Bank at Westpac. Stop trying to fix the women, fix the system. And Eglantine Etiamble. She's the Chief Information Officer for Dulux. What I find we don't often talk about is how hard it is. Love it to have you both on the podcast. Can you paint me a picture of where we're at in technology in Australia? Is there a single number that, that encapsulates the female percentage participation in the in the, the technology sector? Yeah, the number that I always quote, which is a number that's actually pretty factually based, it's a combined number from the Australian Computer Society and Deloitte, which is 28%. And it hasn't moved. It hasn't moved for a number of years. I've been quoting that number since 2013. And so we've been doing a lot of work around it, but nonetheless, 28% is still the number of female participation, the gender participation uh, across ICT. And I'm not even talking technology careers or technology companies. I'm talking across all industries that hire people with ICT skills. What about when we get to the C-suite? Do we know the figures in significant leadership positions? I would say it'd be much less than that. Is there a single number that if we hit, you'd say, okay, that's it, we've got diversity sorted? Is it just a matter of chasing a number? And, and if so, what, what, what are numbers that would be would represent significant change for you? Yep. I think there is something about a critical mass at some point. So yes, and I think traditionally we are quoting something around between the 30 and the 40%. But yes, there is absolutely a moment where you have enough role model uh, so that everybody can identify and create the, the, this pipeline of talent. So yeah, absolutely. Whilst I don't, I'm not sure I believe in, in, in quotas or I haven't seen that working myself that much, there is a moment where if we reach a critical mass, we will change the dynamic. What is the power of critical mass in that sense, Anastasia? I think it's the inclusion of diverse thinking. I think it actually, the voices start getting amplified. Um, the representation starts getting amplified. The impact starts getting amplified. So you do need the critical mass, absolutely, to be able to effect that change. This morning's panel focused on the concept of diversity and, and uh, Robin from uh, Telstra spoke about, you know, the days where she could remember being literally the only woman in the room. That's still not unusual for some women in in certain fields of tech, is it? No. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And and we're talking about the setup often don't make you feel welcome if you're so. There is a prize to win and that's going to be a race on a fast circuit or there's going to be a dinner and it's going to be hosting a sport event where you're going to have the drinks uh, in the male changing room. 
And that doesn't make you feel welcome, does it? A woman I know who was the first woman appointed to the AFL Commission, uh, for the first season that she would go to events, uh, they would sit her next to the chairman's wife for that club and just assume the man she was attending with was actually the person on the AFL Commission. Yeah, it's not unusual. (laughs) So in terms of role models and mentors, what role what role do they most effectively play? I think more role models for me actually make it real that these are real people. These are not, you know, kind of geniuses at play that you're seeing. These are real people like you and I that have real careers, that have chosen to work in this industry, that are having fun working in this industry, that leave, lead very balanced lives. And so I think the, the idea of a role model is actually being able to describe your life in a, in a way that you're comfortable. And similarly, mentors actually help guide you through that. You know, the, the idea of mentoring is, you know, let me um, kind of talk to you about the experiences that I've had so hopefully you don't have to recreate those experiences. I think there's a lot that can be said about the level of support that mentors can provide and role models can provide. Because, Eglinton, there's there's significant research that suggests diverse teams, you know, come up with more creative ways of looking at problems. There's more ideas around the table. You're less likely to get stuck in one way of doing things that we've always done that could become susceptible to a bit of pushing the rules and cheating, there's more likely to be enough people around the table to put their hands up and go, I think we might be doing the wrong thing here. If, if people accept that research, why why isn't this needle moving from 28% in tech? I don't know if you're familiar with that. There is a very interesting um, theory around resistance to change. It's called immunity, immunity to change. And when you're, immunity you're, to change. Immunity to change. And you're looking at something that seems absolutely obvious. And it started by people who were about to die were given a pill that they had to take every day unless in, within a year they would have a heart attack and they would die. And a, ter- a terrible number, like 30% of them wouldn't take them. And it was free and it was no side effects and it was very easy to take. So it's digging back into what what are the good reasons that make you not do it. So for me, we really have to scrutinize it this way. What are the good reasons? Yeah, of course we do know. And we all have children and we have daughters and we want them as well to have the fair chance. And yet, what is holding us back in the pattern? And I think I was talking about this earlier. We haven't reframed the role at all. I, I haven't seen that we've reframed the role. If you're going to a school in Australia today, the vast majority of people dropping the children at a young age, it's the mother, right? And I'm still hearing father telling their children, no, I cannot sing you a song. I'm, I don't do that. That's your mother. I'm the one who is playing football with you. And I still, um, I had a, a terrible event with my son where he was playing with his Lego and all the superhero and the knights. And guess what? They're all men. <laughs> at what point do you say, no, 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 no. I want to see as many knight women in that castle. It's going to be 50-50. That's a discussion we had at home. Right, <laughs> which was interesting. You have a very diverse castle in your Lego <laughs> exactly. house, exactly, and, a, le- and, a, and, a, and a, a diverse space, uh, absolutely. But unless we we go back and dig and, and question ourselves and question our bias and, and what's where we, we what is making us feel um, successful and what makes us feel uh, we have a role to play in this society and change this paradigm, we're stuck in the same story. In, in New South Wales, it's not compulsory to do maths on the HSC, Sp- significantly more, multiples more of the people who drop maths are girls rather than boys. And at the higher level, I, I, I met a woman once who won the, the medal for applied maths at the University of Sydney, and it's pretty rare to get female medalists in mathematics in Australian universities compared to boys. And she, and she was obviously elite, but she said when she was in year 12, 
She had a few classmates who were pretty good at maths. And the message they got was never explicitly said, but the subtle message was, if you're a boy and you're good at maths, bang, off you go. Do your engineering, do your computers. If you're a girl and you're good at maths, that's awesome. Use that mark to get into law and Mm, business mm, and mm. whatever you want to do. It was never said to her explicitly, but there was just that subtle undercurrent she, she thought that women weren't empowered to explore their their numerical hmm. technicals. Agreed. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. I hear it all the time. I hear it all the time in schools. Uh, you know, we spend a lot of time in schools talking to students and and so, you know, talking about the non-compulsory kind of maths. So, so what's happening is that girls are making a decision in year 9 and 10 about the types of careers that they can get into after after school that early. So at 16, you're making a decision that you can't get into science, you can't get into engineering, you can't get into computer science. You're eliminating whole industries at 16. So for me, there's, you know, there's a lot that needs to be changed in that space. And, and you're absolutely right. What we're seeing in year 12 is a ratio of two to one, you know, girls to uh, boys to girls uh, in, in higher uh, level uh, maths. Um, but, the, but it goes back to the teachers. How do we equip the teachers to be having the types of conversations that say, if you choose maths, you can use that to have a brilliant career in so many industries? How do we equip careers counsellors to be having those types of conversations? Because right now, they are very familiar with the types of careers that law bring, that uh, you know medicine bring and so on, but they are not familiar with the types of careers that we're talking about. It's, it's important to get more women in at the beginning to make the field more diverse. It's also important that more women are promoted to higher levels. You both lead amazing executive careers yourself. I have heard it said that sometimes in that pursuing the the higher levels of a career, sometimes some women don't give themselves the best chance. The anecdotal example is given if there's if there's an if there's a, a job a promotion job applied apply for this, you need to satisfy the following ten criteria. Some people will say to me that a woman will look at those ten and go, I only really satisfy seven of those. I'm probably not qualified. A guy will look and go, I've got three of those. I can fake another three of those. I'm probably overqualified for this job. I'll go and chase it. Now, that's a generalisation, but do we need to do something to encourage women once they're in the field to back themselves more and be willing to face possible rejection and put themselves out there and say, no, I'm, I'm proud to say I want this job and I think it belongs to me. You know, I'm judging from your facial expressions. Yeah. You've got a slightly different angle. Yeah. Hear this. No, no. I, I just want to, to to share a joke. I think I don't know if it applies to us, but but it does apply. And I, I just want to share something that was done when we were rehearsing for the panel, and you couldn't enjoy that, that mm. evening. I think, but somebody opening the question made a joke saying, "You probably all wonder why you were invited in this panel, and probably think that you're not qualified speakers for this panel, right?" And everybody said, "Oh yeah." Right? And you have all CIOs around the room, senior exec, and we're all thinking, can we talk about women in technology on the panel? Yes, we can. But our first reflex is, I've done that and that and that and that. Yes, there is a bit of that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Hmm. I would say I agree. There is a bit of that and I hear it quite often as well, you know, that that kind of confidence. But I would also say that there's a lot that systematically takes advantage of that. So, for example, you know, we're advertising for jobs that nobody could have the experience to do. Hmm. You know, we're asking for 10 years in data science. Who's got 10 years in data science, right? And so I think we need to think about how do we work on the confidence and the, you know, getting out of your comfort zone. But we also need to be thinking about what is systematic in some of the job advertising 
advertisements, in the conversations that we're having around you're taking risk in this, they might actually be disadvantaging some of the people that are trying to apply for those roles. So I would say we need to look at it at both sides. I keep saying we can't just work at fixing the women, we need to be fixing the system as well. Is it true in the cliche sometimes that a man who screams and shouts and shows aggression is just a passionate, committed, driven leader and a woman who does the same is a little bit unstable and a little bit, you know, a little bit un- emotionally untrustworthy? I've seen, um, for me, that, 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 that talks a lot about the culture of the, of the organization you're looking at mm. or the family or whatever, whatever community you're looking at. And, and I've really seen the both in, in a quite toxic or misogynist culture where indeed you would have a very, oh yeah, here she comes again or the classic, well, is should she be on, on, a, on, on the succession plan she just had a baby you know Mm. um but I have to say with my current employer, I don't see that at all. And because in uh, it's an organization, the GX group is an organization that really is a value-led, very, very driven um, to leave its value. And there is something about just do it. It's the right thing to do. And it's role model from the top. So everybody shows sensitivity, openness, you know, and from, from the CEO who is going to say, oh, you know what, it's, it's my school, my daughter's concert, it's 3 p.m., I have to go. And he empowers all the uh, all the team to do the same. Mm. Your your industry, Anastasia, um, the broader finance sector is is under the microscope at the moment. Is there the possibility that this moment of reflection across the broader sector might also lead to people asking about more productive ways and more you know, more balanced ways of doing things and composing committees and making discussions? Were some people say sometimes some of the troubles that your industry more broadly is facing is cultures of of hyper winning. And cultures of it's always been this way and no one's stepping back and, and saying, hey, just wait a second here, people, maybe we're doing something wrong. And yet you've seen the kind of conversation that's dominated in the media being on merit of people selected, mm. right, which I, I have found to be a fascinating conversation. So rather than talking about the value that diverse and inclusive teams can add, we're talking about individuals and whether they had enough merit to be appointed into roles. So I think that the conversation needs to become a lot more mature than that. Um, I think we need to take as a fact that inclusive and diverse teams add value. I think that they that we need to take as a fact that they make better balanced decisions and that they're good for any company, including my sector. But I think more broadly, they're a good kind of, you know, strategy across across any company. If a company really wants to hire and promote women into key roles, they first need to take a hard look at their recruiting and evaluation practices. It's a bit like fishing. If you aren't catching anything, there's no point blaming the fish. You need to either use a different lure or fish in a different spot. We said, okay, this is what we need to be doing, this is what we're looking for, and then we worked extremely harder on the supply side. So it's not easy just to say we need all these kind of, you know, um, highly skilled women in leadership. It was about where do we find them? How do we change ourselves? How do we change the job advertisements that we put out there? How do we role model the people? How do we role model the careers uh, that we have in place? How do we role model the types of values that we have? We've taken it even into high schools. So when it comes to women in technology in a bank, you need to be able to explain why would a young girl choose a career in technology when she thinks that potentially that career is very one-laned in terms of where it's going to lead. And so we've got a a program where we're bringing 100 girls uh, from year 10 uh, into the bank uh, and giving them work experience programs. How can we make STEM more accessible to women? Is it about changing conversations in the home, in the education system, or is it something 
bigger? I think it's about all of that. I think it's about changing conversations in the home around expectations that parents have of their daughters that might be different from what those that they have for their sons. I think it's about equipping teachers with the right tools to have STEM conversations. There are a lot of teachers that don't understand quite the detail and are uncomfortable and lack confidence. I think it's about changing the perceptions that uh, employers provide out to the, you know, the broader community. So I think there's a lot of things that we can be doing better at all stages. What I've seen is how to really build a diverse team. Mm-hmm. And I've seen that working well. So with, uh, with so again, starting really at the value and at the strategy level. So what do we deeply want to drive here? Um, translating that into a series of program, accelerating the woman's career and then 10th ten, first year before they have children so that they build this confidence uh, through mentoring and senior leadership programs, etc. Uh, building a very, very flexible workplace so that we can have uh, this openness of saying, of course, yeah, you can be this and that. We're very happy with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I've seen a fantastic results in terms of... Um, um, already our outcome in, in the group I'm currently in. So if you're looking at our graduates in the last three years moved from 50 to 64% women, senior leadership moved from 15 to 30% women, that's mm. on the top 150 people in the organization. Our board moved, non-exec board moved from 20 to 60% of women as well. And, and what that creates, so that creates this acceleration we are talking about that creates, it becomes the norm and I'm happy to be part of the group. I feel comfortable in this group. But that that creates as well an acceleration of how the group is reinventing this self itself mm-hmm. in, a, in a world that needs that. You know, we are moving away from product to service and we have to rethink how do we play, what are our values, etc. And now you have a team who is equipped to have this conversation and there is a huge shift in the conversation. I think that's success. Anastasia? And for me, I would say, I mean, there are things that I'm incredibly proud of that I know that have come as a result of us thinking inclusively and diverse, right? So our, you know, our approach to victims of domestic violence, right? We used to have to ask victims about, you know, that had, um, you know, joint accounts as an example to try to get the details from their partner to access an account that, you know, after they'd run away from home in a mm-hmm. very violent situation. So thinking about the policies and the processes around that, thinking about even the and inclusion from an age perspective, our dementia-friendly banking, right, that recognises that older age people are starting to suffer from dementia. How do we protect them from themselves? How do we protect them from others that might be taking advantage of that? So I think that there's real service, right, outcomes that come out by having people that are thinking broadly, inclusively diverse. Tell us about the She Starts program. So I'm a very, very kind of big advocate for She Starts because I see that as a, you know, an example of putting your your money where your mouth is to a certain extent, right? It is about supporting, you know, female entrepreneurs. It is about supporting, um, you know, female-led businesses. Uh, It is about giving them the confidence and the mentoring uh, to help them achieve the outcomes that they want. So I think, you know, when you've got experience in running big businesses, you can certainly give back uh, in doing that. Yourselves on, 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 on the scale of zero being absolutely pessimistic, this will never be resolved to 10. We've got this in the bag sorted. And I'm absolutely 100% confident we will nail diversity. Where do you sit on that spectrum? How optimistic are you on that front? And what's the sort of time frame that we could realistically look at in a 
an Australian tech workforce that more reflects the sort that you'd want to see? Do you want me to start out? Like I'm a bit, probably about an eight. I'm mm-hmm. an, also an optimist, uh, but I know it takes time. Um, what gives me comfort, however, is that I see young grads coming in and they don't even have any of the preconceptions that we've had in the last 20 years. So these generations that are coming in are kind of saying, well, of course I should be included. What do you mean I can't be included? Mm-hmm. What do you mean it works like that? No, we're going to change that. So I think that the time frame is going to accelerate. Can I put an exact time on it? No, but I'm also very impatient. So I think we need to be doing something, you know, very actively on it. A couple of years ago, I went at, uh, in Melbourne to the uh, St Kilda and the Swans played the first Pride game, the first Rainbow Pride AFL game for competition points. And uh, I was there with a friend of mine and we had our kids there who were all between the ages of like nine and 12. And uh, very emotional for my friend and I to say, this, well, this is great. And I can remember the kids were thinking, yeah, whatever. Of course, it's cool to be gay. Can we just play some football, please? And and I, that 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 really yeah. struck me. Where do you sit on that optimism scale, Egerton? Yeah, very much the same that Anastasia. And I'm going to come back to this in a minute. But I have a very similar mm. story. When when the, the the vote was open in Australia, mm. um, my daughter asked me, "Why are we voting?" And and I said, "Oh well, you know, it's important." Blah 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 blah. I said, "No, I don't know. I get, but." Why on earth would you be allowed to decide that people can love each other or not? And we have to ask the permission for that. That mm. sounds crazy. So I think what we've equipped our children, and that's exa- answering your question, is we've equipped our children with um, values, principle, and we've put words on things. Just like at our generation, we had words on smoking is not that great, you mm. know. Mm. We're putting words on all of this. So, so whilst our, the generation of our, our children will be invested in different positions, we have right now to accelerate and, and make sure that the space they're going to land in is ready to, to ready for them. So you sound like an optimist to me as well. Very optimist, absolutely. Wonderful, wonderful to have you both on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. The most important thing underpinning all of this is that it's not a social issue, it's a business problem. A diversity of perspectives leads to better decisions and that leads to bigger profits. It took us 10 years, but in 10 years, we moved to 50% women in leadership across all roles in Westpac. 50% women in leadership. I feel like that deserves it. And can I just say, we are still a pretty good, profitable, well-liked business, okay? (laughs) Let's recognise that it's hard, uh, that it's a trial and error, and let's give a, a pat on the back when we are trying. And the big aha for me was you have to start working on yourself. Not as a woman, as an individual, as a leader. If you really want to bring this inclusion, you have to start working on yourself. Transform yourself, understand your bias, and the transformation will, will follow. So thanks to Anastasia Comorato, Eglantine Ediomble, and all the guests on our series. I'm Adam Spencer, and this has been Telstra Vantage Behind the Mic. You can subscribe to this podcast series on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This is our fourth and final episode in this series. But if you missed any of the earlier ones, you can go back and catch up on those, including my conversation with Daniel Pink about, amongst other things, what's the best time of day to have surgery? Well, be sure to check out that and lots of great other content by subscribing to Telstra Vantage Behind the Mic.